0: Ecclesiastes H, who is like the wise, who knows the explanation of things. A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is is supreme, Can say to him, What are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and a wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who gets what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil, all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. The Word of the Lord.
1: Welcome to church. My name is Adam. It's great to have you join us today. We're in the middle of a sermon series at the moment called Chasing the Wind. We're exploring the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, it's a bit of a unique book in the Bible. We said in the first week of this series that if the Bible is like a party, Ecclesiastes is the party pooper. I mean, as we've been working our way through it, we found that Ecclesiastes can feel like a bit of a downer. The teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he talks a lot about death. He describes a lot of things as meaningless. He's not exactly a barrel of laughs. But the teacher is not being pessimistic. He's being realistic. He's taking an honest look at life in this world. He's asking questions that we all need answers to. And today in chapter eight, the teacher, he asks one of the most important and most confusing questions in the world. He brings up an issue that I'm sure we've all wrestled with at some point. Now, to set it up, let me tell you about the movie, Amadeus. If you haven't seen it, it's about two musical composers. Two men from the 1800s who would write and compose musical scores. The first is a man named Antonio Salieri. Now, Salieri was a devout Catholic. He would work tirelessly at his craft. He was devoted to making music but he never seemed to to catch a break or to make it big. His music essentially went unnoticed and he remained obscure and unappreciated. The other man is a man named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and he is depicted as a drunk, a womanizer, a dodgy character. But his music, which is a string of masterpieces, it seems to come to him without effort. It comes to him often when he's under the influence of alcohol or when he's had very little sleep. And he ends up idolized and famous all over the world. And so there's a scene in the movie where Salieri has a crisis. The unfairness of this bubbles to the surface. And he asks God, God, why would you choose someone like Mozart to give this incredible gift and ability and success? Why not someone like me? He says to God, he says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smarty, infantile boy and gave me only the ability to recognize it. You are unjust, unfair, unkind. Salieri renounces God and he melts down. Now you probably haven't put it in the same words as Salieri, but I bet that you've wrestled with the same question. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does life so often seem unfair? You know, this week I read an article t- titled Lifestyles of the Rich and Tyrannical." It goes into detail about the luxurious lives of some of the world's worst dictators. I mean, while people in their countries barely have enough to eat, these dictators buy sports cars, yachts and private jets. They take money that's supposed to be spent on uh, low-income housing for the poor and they build mansions for themselves. It's just not right. But it's not just global dictators, it's everyday life as well. I mean, all around us, there are people who wrought the system. There are people who make dodgy deals, who step on others to get ahead. And the shocking thing is, they seem to get away with it. They make money, they get the job, they seal the deal. It's just not fair. To make it even more personal, when we open up our laptop, when we scroll on our phone, we're often confronted with the unfairness of life. The woman who often complains about her children, she announces that she's having another one. While you just long for one positive pregnancy test. The man who who openly lusts after other women, he announces that he's getting engaged. The person that you know is dishonest at work, they get the promotion and you end up stuck in your job. It just doesn't seem fair. This is what we see all around us and this is what the teacher observed in his day as well. This is what he says in verse 14. He says there is something else meaningless, hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Now the teacher has a lot of other things to say in chapter 8. But today we're gonna focus on this particular issue. We're gonna focus on verses 10 to 17 to consider the question, why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does life so often seem unfair? Now, this is not the only place in the Bible where this question is raised. Psalm 73, for example, it was written by a man named Asaph and he wrestled with this exact issue. This is what he says. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. To Asaph, it seemed like God's enemies got all the blessing. They're healthy, wealthy, and happy. But Asaph who loved God and tried to obey God, he ended up struggling and miserable. Or uh, consider Job. Job from the Old Testament. We're told that he was a righteous man. He was blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil, and yet he suffered terribly. He lost his livelihood, his servants, even his children. And he cries out to God in the midst of his grief. He says, why do the wicked live on? growing old and increasing in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Uh, Here's what the teacher, here's what Asaph, here's what Job are all wrestling with. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the worst so often seem to get the best? This is one of the most confusing realities in our world. And this is one of the things that when we look at it, it can shake our faith. And so what we'd like to do today is we want to consider the question, how do we make sense of this? How do we understand it and how do we live in light of it? And the teacher offers us two insights in this passage. He gives us two answers to this question. Now, before we look at them, let me just say that I am indebted to a a pastor named Scott Sauls. He's someone that I admire greatly and I listen to regularly, and he helped me to see these two points in this passage. He helped me to shape the sermon. So with that being said, let's explore the first answer the teacher gives us. The first insight that helps us to make sense of the fact that the wicked seem to prosper. And it's this, it's we need to understand that there will be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. Now from our perspective, evil seems to run riot. It seems to go on unchecked. It seems as if evil, injustice, oppression, it will go on forever and it will never be made right. And truth be told, this is where the the modern secular worldview leads. The worldview that says there is no God. That this universe is all there is. That we are material people living in a material world. Because the fact is, if this is the case, if there is no God, It means that ultimately there will be no justice. It means that wrongs will never be made right. There is no higher court beyond ourselves where justice will be done. And this means that the universe and all that has happened in it is just blind chance and bad luck. Now, I wonder what you think about that. I wonder if you can live with that. Well, here, the teacher, along with the rest of the Bible, he tells us something very different. He tells us that evil, injustice, oppression, it has an expiration date. It will be called to account. This is how he puts it in verse 13. The teacher says, Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, It will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So the teacher compares the lives of the wicked to the shadows at the end of the day. Now, as the day comes to a close and as the sun sets, the shadows get longer and longer. But the teacher says it won't be this way for the wicked. As their days come to an end, as the sun sets on their lives, they will not go on and on and on in their rebellion against God and in their mistreatment of other people. It will come to an end. They will stand before God. There will be a reckoning. Now the Bible talks regularly about the certainty of God's judgment and often in very, very stark ways. So, for example, if you read the book of Psalms, you know this is true. The Psalms talk regularly and often and very vividly about the reality of God's judgment. For example, Psalm 10, we read, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? Break the arm of the wicked man call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. Or Psalm 94, the Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. Now when we hear this, we might think to ourselves, is God really like this? I mean, isn't God a God of love? a God of love be filled with wrath and anger? Shouldn't he just kind of forgive and accept everyone? Now, this is a a common objection, but it's flawed. I mean, it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of real love. See, anger is not the opposite of love. Just see what will happen if you try to harm one of my children. I will get angry, violently if necessary. Not in spite of my love, but because of my love. The love that I have for my child inspires my anger. Here's the way author Becky Pippitt puts it. She says, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference, not caring. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God's anger is an expression of God's deep love. How much worse would it be if God didn't care about evil? If God just kind of turned a blind eye to it? He would not be truly good or truly loving. Here's the way another author by the name of Trevon Wax puts it. He says, "'The God who is truly scary is not the wrathful God of the Bible.'" But the God who closes his eyes to the evil of this world, shrugs his shoulders and ignores it in the name of love. What kind of love is this? A God who is never angered at sin and who lets evil go unpunished is not worthy of worship. Now, if we ignore God's judgment, if we reject God's justice, if we just say God's a God of love, he should just accept and forgive everybody it actually simply reveals our privileged position. It reveals we've probably lived a pretty sheltered life. Because when we are faced with injustice and oppression, when someone we love is faced by real evil, we want God to do something about it. We cry out for justice. And so the justice of God is good news for our unjust world. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. There will be a day of reckoning. You can count on it. But amazingly, this is not all the Bible has to say about God's judgment. Now, if this was all the Bible had to say about God's judgment, that there is a day of future judgment coming, it would not actually be good news for us. And it should actually make us very nervous. Because if God will one day bring all evil to account, if God will one day end all wrongdoing, what does that mean for you and for me? For those of us who have done wrong, for those of us who have committed evil, for those of us who have mistreated other people. In other words, for all of us. I mean, the Bible is clear that we are all deserving of God's judgment. Do you remember what we read last week in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 20? The writer said, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Or as Russian uh, author Alexander, and I can't say his last name, so I'm just going to say Alexander S., as he's put it so well, he says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. See, the judgment of God is not ultimately good news for sinners like us, unless God has done something about it, which incredibly the Bible tells us he has. on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus was deeply distressed. He cried out to his father in prayer and he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, why was Jesus so afraid, so distressed? The answer is the cup. When Jesus refers to the cup, he's drawing on an Old Testament image that referred to the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew that as he was about to go to the cross, he would drink down the cup of God's judgment. I mean, this is the scandal of the cross, that the only perfectly righteous person the only perfectly loving person, the only truly innocent person who has ever lived, he faced down the judgment of God. On the surface, this looks like the most unfair event in human history, but it's actually the most loving because Jesus was not a passive victim. He was a willing participant. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He sacrificially gave himself for you and for me to bear our judgment, to pay our sin. And this means that when it comes to facing God's judgment, which we rightly deserve, it can be faced in two ways. The first way is to face it alone, to refuse to admit your guilt and your sin to hold on to your pride and your self-righteousness and to refuse the gift of forgiveness. The second way is to flee to Jesus, to acknowledge your sin, to put your faith in him, to receive the gift of forgiveness. Everything you've ever done, past, present and future, paid for by Jesus, Your guilty record put on him, his perfect record given to you. I mean, this is the scandalous good news of the gospel. And what makes it truly scandalous is that everyone is invited. Jesus Christ opens his arms wide and invites everyone to come. this was really put on display in an amazing way during the trial of Larry Nasser. Larry was the doctor of the USA gymnastics team for many years but in 2018 he was convicted of numerous counts of sexual abuse and during his trial a lady named Rachel Den Hollander she was a gymnast and one of the first to file charges against Larry she gave a powerful victim impact statement this is what she said to larry she said there will be a final judgment where all of god's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done the guilt will be crushing and that is what makes the gospel so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where there should be none And it will be there for you. I mean, this is the scandal of the gospel. The worst criminal can be welcomed. This is good news for you and for me because we are far more sinful than we realize. But in Christ, we are far more loved than we've ever dared to dream. So when we consider the question, why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things happen to bad people? The first thing we need to understand is that there will be a reckoning. The second, if you're taking notes, is this. It's that there will be relief. There will be relief. This is what the teacher says in verse 12. He says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. The teacher is honest about life. Yes, the wicked prosper. They commit a hundred crimes. They live long. He even says in verse 11, they seem to get away with it. The sentence for their crimes are not quickly carried out. The teacher is honest about life in this broken world. But he also invites us to lift our eyes onto God, and onto our future. He says it will go better with those who fear God. Or as the ESV translates it, it will be well. For those who fear God, for those who humble themselves before God, for those who admit their sin, for those who surrender to Jesus, they have the promise of a new and better day. They have the promise of hope for the future. It will be well well. Now the fact is we need hope to live well in this world. If we are going to endure through life in this world, especially when it's unjust and unfair, we need hope for the future. We are hope-based creatures. Think about it this way. Imagine you have two people of the same age. They have the same educational background, even the same temperament. And you hire both of them to do a job and you say to them, you are part of an assembly line and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. Now you put these two people in identical rooms with the same lighting, the same temperature, the same ventilation. You give them the same number of breaks in a day. I mean, their conditions are exactly the same except for one difference. You say to the first woman at the end of the year we will pay you $30,000. But then you say to the second woman at the end of the year we will pay you $30,000,000. And so the women get to work and of course it's boring work and after a couple of weeks the first woman says man isn't this tedious? It's driving me insane. I'm thinking about quitting. The second woman says, what? No way. I mean, this is fine. This is great. I don't mind it. I'm definitely not quitting. Now, what's the difference? What's going on? Everything is the same, except their hope for the future, their expectation for the future. I mean, what we believe about our future, it shapes and it changes our experience in the present. And the teacher is inviting us here to look to the future that God has promised us, to look to the promises that God has made, to help us to endure through the present, especially when life is unjust and unfair. Now, we see this in many places in the Bible, this this command to look to the future. But I think especially about Hebrews chapter 11. Now it's famously known as the faith chapter or as the hall of fame. It basically lists out for us a number of heroes of the faith. People like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. Now these people are heroes not because they're perfect, I mean far from it. They're heroes because they remained faithful. They didn't give up, they didn't give in, they didn't quit. They kept the faith and in fact All the people listed in chapter 11, they have three things in common. They had a faith in God. They belonged to him by faith. They had experienced incredible pain and incredible loss. But they all took the long view. They all looked to the future. This is what we read in verse 14. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 16, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. To help us endure the pain of the present, we need to look to the hope of our future. To quote a song by An artist named Crowder, a song that we sing every now and again in church. He says, Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken-hearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are, there's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. What about you? Have you come home? Have you laid down your hurt and your heart? Have you sat at the table? Have you tasted the grace? There's a seat for you. If you're willing to acknowledge your guilt, to kneel before Jesus, to receive the gift of grace, to submit to him as Lord, he will not cast you out and he will never let you down the only safe way through the reckoning that is to come the only sure way into the glory and relief of the future it's through Jesus now you might think you might expect that if you put your faith in Jesus everything will work itself out. It'll be sunshine. Life will be sorted out. Your problems will be solved and it'll just be smooth sailing into heaven. But it's just not true. In fact, look at how the teacher ends this passage in verse 17. He says, No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Now we can know many of the most important things. We can know Jesus is Lord. We can know there will be a reckoning. We can know there will be relief and this helps us to endure in the present. But at the end of the day, we have to be wise enough to admit that we're not gonna get answers to all of our questions. We're not gonna know why everything happens. We're not gonna understand everything. But this is okay. Because God has actually given us something far better than a full and complete explanation. God has given us himself. And this is far better. I mean, imagine that you were lost at night. You're driving your car in the dark and you have no idea where you are. Now, what would you rather have in that moment? Would you rather have a full and complete and detailed map? A map that shows you all the terrain, all of the roads, everything in detail? Or would you rather have a local in the front seat who knows the roads and knows where to go? What would you rather have? The detailed map which you would need to interpret and read correctly? Or the local who says to you, I know the way, follow me. Now God has shown us a fair bit of the map. He's shown us a lot about him, about ourselves and about our world, but he hasn't given us every single detail. Instead, he's done something better. He's hopped into the car with us. He's come near to us. He sent Jesus to die and to rise again for us. And he sent his spirit to dwell in us and to empower us. He's with us. And so when we come to really difficult questions, like why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked prosper? We might not discover everything we might not want to know. We might not see the whole map, but we have God with us in the car. And because he's with us, we know that we won't get lost. All will be well. You know, one man who understood this deeply was a man named Louis de Morelles. Louis was imprisoned in France for his faith in 1658. And he was treated with incredible injustice and inhumanity, locked up in a dungeon, forced to be a slave, and he was constantly harassed to renounce his faith. But he did not waver. And during the last year of his life, Lewis was locked up on his own in total darkness. He says it was horrific. But he comforted himself with this truth from Ecclesiastes 8. He would say to himself repeatedly, it is... And it shall be well. And this is the testimony of everyone who believes in Jesus. In the midst of all the suffering, all of the injustice, all of the unanswered questions, we know that it is well because God is with us. God is near to us. And we know it shall be well because the God of justice and grace, he will one day save us and welcome us home on that final day. It will be well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus, the one who has borne our judgment in our place so that we, the guilty, might go free so that we might be adopted into your forever family, so that we might have the certain hope of being reunited with you in glory forevermore. And Lord, for those of us who have never sat down at the table, tasted the grace, repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, Lord, there is no day like today And Lord, some of us need to do that right now. And Lord, others of us just need to admit, Lord, that we have become weary from the, the pain and the injustice and the hurts in our world. And we need to once again take our stand and put our faith in you, Jesus, our solid rock, our refuge, the one on whom we stand when all around us is sinking sand. And so we now turn to you, our great King, our Saviour, and our Lord. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand for this blessing from God's word? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow with hope. Amen.